All right, everybody, welcome back to the fifth week of this great series, Character Matters, and I'm excited to be able to actually share the message with you today. And we've been learning about these great men and women uh, in the Old Testament, and so far just the men, but there's some women coming up. Next week, I share about uh, a woman named Rebecca. I don't know if many of you know who Rebecca is, but a great great woman leader in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about her. Pastor Jeffrey Johnson is going to come talk to us about Moses. Dr. Ivan's going to talk to us about Esther coming up. We're going to hear about Noah. I was going to preach a whole message on Daniel, but we're going to get a whole series on Daniel because back in uh, Easter, I asked you guys, what do you guys want me to speak about in the fall? And you wrote me so many uh, notes and letters about what you wanted to hear about. And many, many, many of the requests came back on what in the world is going on? And what does the Bible have to say about the times in which we live? And, you know, what is happening? Are we living in the end times and so on? So the book of Daniel, about half that book, uh, speaks to the very days that we're living in right now, very vividly. So we're going to unpack that half of the book. The other half of the questions that came in had to do specifically with how am I supposed to live in this culture where all the values are changing? And if you think about it, Daniel was a young man who the culture was trying to change his name, change his God, change his values, change even the food that he ate. I mean, everything about that culture was trying to squeeze Daniel and his friends into its mold. And Daniel was able to resist or actually rebel against that pressure, but to do it in a way where he was consistently promoted into higher and higher levels of leadership. In fact, every king that he served in that environment trusted him as a great, great leader. So we're not only going to learn how to withstand the culture, we're going to learn how to do it in the right way. So I'm going to give a whole series to Daniel uh, following this great series on Character Matters. And so I hope you'll invite some people for that. I think it's going to speak specifically to where we are right now. In fact, your invitation has so much power. Last week, a young woman was baptized here after only coming three weeks in a row. And how she got here was one of her friends on Facebook, a young lady in our church named Larissa, she just posted out three weeks ago. She said, hey, I'm going to Heartland Church. Who's with me this morning? And this young woman that she hadn't met in real life but only connected with on Facebook said, sure, I'll come with you. And she came for the last three weeks and last Sunday gave her life to Jesus and was baptized after the service. That is amazing. And that's the power of an invitation. That's just the power of a simple invitation, the influence that you have. And I want you to know, I want you to start thinking about and praying for who can you invite, not only to the rest of this series on character, but thinking about, we're going to talk about culture and talk about the days in which we live and all this crazy stuff going on in the world. And what does the Bible have to say? You need to invite some people to come back for that, okay? So that's where we're headed. But today, I want to talk to you about a man named Joseph. Not Mary and Joseph, like Joseph in the coat of many colors. You guys heard of this, Joseph? Uh, Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And this message is dedicated to anybody who feels like, I've had enough. You ever been there where you just said, I've had it, I'm done, it's over? Whether it's a job or a relationship or a marriage or some interaction with one of your children, or maybe it's just, you just feel like quitting. You ever had that energy-sucking time in your life where you say, I just, I just want to quit. I had a pastor come see me this week who said, I want to give up. I'm done. I've had it. You know, he says, I'm working harder and harder for less and less results. People expect me to keep coming up with these messages. My worship leader just quit. We're having financial difficulty. I'm so frustrated. I feel like giving up. I'm very unappreciated. I don't feel like I have a friend in the world, and so on. 
And so I just talked to him and listened. And you know, I started thinking back to all the times I wanted to quit when we were starting this church, 13 years ago till now. And some of you remember those early days. I wanted to quit like every week. It was, in fact, the first Sunday that we had in this building, uh, there was a hand, not even close to this many people, and we didn't have any musicians, none of these great singers and worship leaders that we have today. Oh no, we had nobody. So you know what any good resourceful person does when you don't have musicians? You know what you do? You go to Guitar Center. That's what you do. I, literally, that's so, that sounds so dumb, but that's what I did. I went to Guitar Center, and I thought, I need to find me some musicians. And you know what people do at Guitar Center? They play the one song they're really good at. They don't know anything else, but they play that one thing, and you go, wow, they're really good. So I saw these two guys play, and I thought, you guys should come play at my church on Sunday. I need musicians. It must be God. It was not God. <laughs> they showed up. They didn't know any songs. They were horrible. Two of the guys showed up completely stoned. I mean, glassy-eyed. I'm going, what have I done? I wanted to quit so bad. They said, we have a great little number from a band called Cheap Trick. And I just learned to my wife, I said, did they just say Cheap Trick in church? Oh, my... <laughs> It was a horrible Sunday. I wanted to quit. You guys remember that. You were there. <laughs> Another time I was talking about peace and how to overcome stress. It was on a Christmas Eve, and I was talking about baby Jesus and the Prince of Peace, and I was so stressed out. I was so full of anxiety that I actually forgot my sermon. And so in the middle of it, nothing. And I stood up and I literally said, you guys, can you just talk amongst yourselves for a minute while I try to remember what I was supposed to on Christmas Eve? I wanted the ground to open up and just fall into the, I was, I wanted to quit. I have been there many, many times. Now that's all funny, but what do you do when you say, I've had it, I'm ready to quit, I'm ready to give up. And see, Joseph is qualified to talk to us about giving up. In fact, you need to know a little bit about his family before you understand him. You see, his father Jacob was poisoning the family. It was a dysfunction of family. Two women in the same house, sisters, Joseph had married sisters, he loved one and despised the other. The one that he despised uh, was able to have children and she kept having children. In fact, the first child that she has, she literally names in the Hebrew something like, maybe now my husband will love me that I have produced a son. And she has one son, two sons, ten sons, and Jacob doesn't love any of them. But one day, Rachel, the wife he does love, who couldn't have children, suddenly becomes pregnant. And when she has that little baby, you know what name they called him? Joseph. And he loved that little boy. In fact, he did all kinds of favoritism and special attention and puts a little coat on this boy, a little coat of many colors, which isn't just a, a, a colorful coat. It signified this one, this is the heir. All of you guys get nothing. And he was single-handedly destroying this family. And so you have a little child growing up entitled and a tattletale and, a real, and, a, and really a spoiled little brat. Really not even his fault. It's the dynamics of the family. And you have a set of brothers who are murderously bitter. They hate him. In fact, this is where the story picks up. If you'll look in your notes and you'll pull that out, and I hope you'll write some of this down, because you may say, you know what, I'm not that, I, I, I'm not ready to quit today, I'm good. Listen, you're going to need this message someday. And you say, well, couldn't you be more positive? Listen, I'm positive you're gonna have a day like this, okay? So write this stuff down. So Genesis chapter 37, verse five, check this out. It says that Joseph had a dream, because God started talking to this little entitled, you know, little boy who really, it wasn't even his fault, 
But he had a dream from God, and when he told it to his brothers, notice they hated him all the more. So they already hated him, now they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to my dream. We were all out in the field binding sheaves of grain when suddenly my sheaf of grain rose up and stood upright while all your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to it. Boy, that's inspiring for the brothers, isn't it? Like, I'm sure they all broke out and started applauding. That was an awesome dream. They hated him all the more. They're like, who does this little, and they, they set in their mind, you know, this dreamer, this little punk brat, here comes that dreamer, they said, come now, let's kill him. I mean, they're like, we're done, we've had it. You ever been there with somebody? I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> I've, I've had it. We're done. We'll throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. We'll see what comes of his dreams. Now, Joseph should have never, I mean, he's 17 years old, but he should have never told his brothers that dream and, and that way, but those guys were murderous. In fact, they didn't actually kill him. They made it look like they killed him, and they actually sold him into slavery, which sounds so cute in Sunday school, but they, they trafficked him. They, it was human trafficking, sent him into slavery, and that little dream that Joseph got, he didn't see anything resembling that dream for the next 23 years. And God was very silent, and God wasn't, wasn't telling him what was going on. And for 23 years, his life looked like it was going in the total opposite direction. And Joseph is totally qualified to say to you, because I know what it feels like, I, I know what you're going through, don't give up. And as if we were, if Joseph were to come here today, and take you across the street to Cracker Barrel and sit down with you and you told some of the disappointments and some of the dreams you had that God hadn't fulfilled. You might even be angry with God for not letting things go the way you think they should be going. And Joseph would sit down and say, let me tell you from my life what I've learned about not giving up and how to endure. These are endurance lessons from Joseph. The first one is this, don't give up. Don't give up, even if you didn't start out well. See, Joseph didn't have a chance, really. I mean, the family was so dysfunctional. It was so messed up. He was so, uh, it was so seated by his father, Jacob. And he would say, even if you had a terrible family, even if you didn't have opportunity, even if your whole background was messed up and you had brothers that wanted to kill you, it doesn't matter how you started off or even the mistakes you've made. See, so many people are defining their life not by the potential of what their life is, but just by constantly looking in the rearview mirror. They're always looking at the past. And we have an accuser named Satan. You know, he's called the accuser in Revelation 12, where it says he's the deceiver. He whispers in your ear day in and day and night, and he accuses you before God, and he accuses you to yourself. He basically says, well, you know who you are, and you know what you've done, and you know what's wrong and what you've, the mistakes you've made. You know, and every time you try to do one thing, you have this voice that says you're not enough. You know, and some of you have a hard time hearing God. You have no problem hearing the accuser. Think about that. And the accuser's always saying, you know. It's like this guy who walked into the pet store. You ever heard this story? It's a funny story. And he's walking around, mind his own business, and a parrot calls out to him and says, hey. And he looks over, and he says, what? You talking to me? And the parrot says, yeah, you, come here. So he walks over to the parrot, looks at the dumb parrot. The parrot says, you were the ugliest thing I ever saw in my whole life. So he's offended by that. So he calls over the manager and says, your bird just offended me, told him what he said, and the manager slaps the parrot on the beak and says, you cannot talk to the customers that way. 
So the man leaves. Well, he came, comes back a month later, minding his own business, walking around the store, and he hears, hey, and he turns around, and it's the parrot. He says, you talking to me? And the parrot says, yeah, you, come over here. So he walks over, and he says, what? And the parrot says, you know. Now, that is exactly Satan's job description, right? That's what he does to you all the time. He says, well, you know what you did, and you know what didn't work out, and you know what blew up, and you know what you said, and you're, you're never going to amount to anything. I don't know how many people I've met, and that's the soundtrack that's playing in their life. Well, you know, and the past is robbing them of the potential of the future. The Apostle Paul understood this. This is a man who started off what we would call by today's standards a religious terrorist. He, he actually, in Acts 7, stood over the execution of a man who believed in Jesus and had him stoned simply because he didn't believe like he believed. I mean, he was a murderer and a violent man. One day, Paul had this encounter with the risen Jesus who said, why are you persecuting me, Paul? It's me, it's God. And he had this life-changing encounter. He would go on to write literally two-thirds of the New Testament. He would start churches all over the world, the greatest man of God since Jesus. You know, it was a great man, but he struggled with the voice of the accuser. And it comes up in a lot of his writings because he says things like, uh, if God be for me, who can be against me? He says in another place, pressing uh, forgetting the past, I am pressing on to what's ahead. Or when he wrote to his young protege pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, look at this. He says, he writes, I thank uh, Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength because I was weak. I, 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 I made a lot of mistakes. He considered me faithful even when I wasn't. I mean, I thought I was being faithful, but I was so wrong. And while I was being unfaithful to God, he saw potential in me that I didn't even know that I had. He appointed me to his service. I mean, he appointed me to do great things for God in spite of the fact that I used to be a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted out in ignorance and unbelief. And see, aren't you just curious about the Bible a little bit? When you look at these great men that did awesome things, these women that did things for God, and all of them had messed up pasts. All of them had broken homes or, or, or adverse situations, and God says, I see potential in you, and he chose them, and he says, you can come and follow me and do great things. I say it all the time. If you follow Jesus with your whole heart for, a, for just a short period of time, you won't even recognize yourself a few years from now. Don't let how you started determine how you finish. And Joseph would say, don't give up just because you started off not so good. The second thing he would say is don't give up even when those closest to you discourage you. There is nothing like having people that know you cut you down, discourage you, tell you that you're not enough. I mean, you can take it from a lot of people, but it literally takes the energy and the strength out of your body when someone you care about discourages you instead of encouraging. Giving you courage, they're actually taking away your strength. And you know, when we're discouraged, we want to give up. When I, when I was a kid, I grew up with a mom and dad who told me they loved me every day. Great, amazing parents, but you know, they're missionaries and we moved a lot. I counted up one time that I moved, uh, I went to 12 different schools between kindergarten and 12th grade. So I was always the new kid. I was always the new one trying to fit in, and it was a little awkward and always strange and weird. <laughs> this one time, we moved from the Caribbean, a little island, to 100 miles north of North Dakota in Saskatchewan. 
Now, those people spoke English and I spoke English, but we did not understand each other at all. It was like a totally different side of the planet. And, you know, the rejection and the, you know, I mean, I had great parents, but that was a traumatic year that affected me for years. Not, you don't belong. You're not enough. I mean, it's a miracle I'm standing in front of you today. But, but what happens when that kind of discouragement, rejection happens in your own family? Like what happened to Joseph? Nobody believed in him. His own family, his mother, his father, his brothers and sisters didn't believe that God was talking to him. How discouraging. Jesus understood this. Do you remember that, that at the very time his ministry was exploding in popularity and he was doing great things as, the, as, as, as who he was as the Messiah was being revealed his own family, his brothers and sisters, they wouldn't believe him. And would you? I mean, he grew up in the same bedroom as us. He is not the son of God. I don't know. And at one point, we hear a story in Mark 6 of his brothers and sisters coming to take charge of him. Like, we're sorry. I know what he says, but we want you to know he's not really the Messiah. <laughs> he's not really God. He, you know, he should be coming home with us. He's out of his mind. Please, we're sorry. Don't listen to him. Can you imagine how discouraging that was? Look at it for yourself. Isn't this the carpenter, they said? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And, and the people that were in the neighborhood, they said they took offense at him because, you know, this is the town he grew up in. And Jesus said, listen, only in his own hometown as a person without honor, a prophet without honor. And he could do very few miracles there because of their unbelief, incredibly discouraging. But Joseph would say, just because the people close to you don't believe, don't you dare give up. Lots of people have this. And God is doing gr something great in your life in spite of their discouragement. He is using even their discouragement and their cynicism and those attacks to shape you into a person of great character. In fact, it's moving you towards God's end. That's why he would say the third lesson is you got to remember this. Don't give up even if your journey is full of surprises. Don't give up just because you couldn't predict the way things are supposed to go. Those of you who've lived a little longer, you're starting to realize that life never moves in a straight line. No matter what you plan, there are always zigzags. And I want to tell you as your pastor, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to grow spiritually, I want to just let you know, I'm Darren, I love you. I want to help you out. It does not go in a, in a straight line. You cannot plan your spiritual growth from point A to point B. There are always zigzags. That, that God will move you, and sometimes it feels like you're going backwards, and sometimes you feel you're not making any progress, and most of the time you don't have a clue what's going on. Don't you just wish that you could know what God is doing? That, that scripture we've been learning through this whole series is commit whatever you do to the Lord, and your plans will succeed. We want God to tell us the plan so we can do the right things, and God's not telling us the plan. In fact, it feels like we're going in the wrong direction. I just want to walk you through Joseph's life just so you can see the moments that he would be tempted to give up because life went in the wrong direction. Number one, he was misunderstood and rejected by his family. You think that made him feel like he would have to give up? Second thing, he was trafficked by his brothers into human slavery. So now not only do they not believe in me, they've sold me as a slave. That's a give up moment. He's taken to a strange country far from home, as if that's not bad enough, and there he is bought by an officer in Pharaoh's army. Another give up moment. But he gets into 
Potiphar's house and he begins to exemplify himself by his attitude and by his behavior and by his reliability and just the leader that he is becoming. And Potiphar soon recognizes his ability, puts him in charge of his entire house as chief of staff. The line just zigzagged upwards. It's all been going bad, but suddenly a break. <laughs> just when he's getting his break, he's noticed by Potiphar's wife, who thinks that Joseph is pretty handsome, and she starts to make moves on him and tries to seduce him, and one day even grabs him in the bedroom and hangs onto him, both hands, and says, come to bed with me. And Joseph is, how can I sin against God, and how can I dishonor my master, who, who has so honored me? No, I won't do it. And he tries to get away, and she grabs onto him, and he literally, to get away from her, he slips out of his, his coat, leaves it in her hands, and he runs. You hear that? He ran. Which is a great strategy, by the way. If you ever find yourself in that moment of, of sexual temptation, run. Get out of the car. Run. You know, First uh, Corinthians says, flee sexual immorality. That's not figurative language. Run. You know, just a good jog will help you, by the way. You know, what? It's true. <laughs> he ran, and she yelled rape, and she's holding his coat. He, he gets thrown into prison for having integrity. He gets thrown in prison for doing the right thing. The line just zigzagged down. I bet he felt like giving up then. I was doing the right thing. Now I'm in prison, and he's in prison for a long time. In fact, one day, uh, his, his, his ability becomes noticed again. God gives him favor in the prison, and the jailers realize this is a man that can work for us, and he, soon he is put in charge of the entire prison. So he has another upturn. And there he, in prison, he interprets the dream of, of one of Pharaoh's leaders of his household, probably the butler, the cupbearer, and he says, you know, in a few days, you're going to be released. That's what your dream means. When you get back into Pharaoh's court, remember me. Don't leave me here in prison. The butler gets out, just like Joseph predicts, but then he's promptly forgotten, and he spends another two years in the pit, forgotten, <sighs> give up. You see the zigzags? My point here is, do you see how, it's, how one minute it's a give up moment, the next minute, well, I guess I can go on. One minute it's give up, one minute I guess I can go on. And he's back in the prison another two more years. He's been in prison. He was 17 when he was sold into slavery. He's almost 40 now, and he's been in, in jail or in slavery all that time. And then that one, that one fateful day where Pharaoh has a dream that nobody can understand, and he is so disturbed by it, and none of the counselors or wise men of all of Egypt, the psychologists, they can't help Pharaoh. And that butler says, you know what? There was this guy in prison. And they summon Joseph from prison who promptly interprets the dream of Pharaoh. Not only interprets the dream, but says, if I were in your position, you know, here's what I think you ought to do. And gives the plan of how to prepare for this great famine that's going to come upon the world. And the Pharaoh says, there's nobody in Egypt that knows what to do. And you are wiser than all of my counselors. I will put you in charge of Egypt, second only to me. And in one day, he goes from the pit to the palace. Now, in that moment... Joseph can look back over all of the zigzags and see the hand of God and say, if it wasn't for that butler, and if it wasn't for the prison, if it wasn't for that false accusation, I mean, he can see the, the hand of God, but until that moment, he knows nothing. And that's why the point of this right now is, what are you going to do in your give up moments? Just because you can't see where it's headed. You see, the scripture says, in all things, and we know, it says in Romans 8, and we know, and that's the problem, because sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we're like, I don't know what God's doing. But by faith we say, and we know that God works together 
all things, everything that happens for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And see, Joseph figured this out long before that verse was ever written, that God was in control the whole time. God even uses bad things. God even uses wicked things, terrible things. I want you to understand something. God does not shoot airplanes down out of the sky. He will hold the wicked accountable. The scriptures say that a man plans in his heart his actions, but it's the Lord that determines the outcome. So the man planned the disaster, and man planned the evil, and he planned the wickedness, and God says, I will hold them accountable. There will be a day of judgment. I will settle every score. But God says, I have the power to even take the wicked that people do and turn around and use it for ultimate good in the end, see, in the end, in the end. That's why the Bible says this in Psalms chapter 16, the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. And Joseph would say, that's right, it was a disastrous day, the day my wicked brothers sold me into slavery. But I'm so glad they did because look where it got me. Look, what, look where it took me. Look what God was doing all along. I just couldn't see it when I, when I was in those moments when it felt like God wasn't there. When God was being silent, he would say, you know what, it's in the silent times that I even heard God talk to me about my character and learn how to hold my tongue and learn how to be self-aware. And you see, Joseph is not the same person that he was when he was 17. By the time we see him at 40, his character is completely developed. And that's why the number four thing that he would say to us is don't give up. It's going to take a long time. Even if it takes a long time, don't give up because God's not working on your destination. He's working on your character. Because your character is what's going to matter. And 23 years is a long time to be in prison. 17 to 40. But that's how long it took for God to shape Joseph into the leader that he needed to be. So in one day when he brought him from the pit to the palace, he'd be ready for the opportunity. And some of you hate that message. Some of you say, I don't like that at all. I don't like the fact that he suffered and he was in prison and falsely accused. Are you telling me that i got to put up with all of these bad things? I don't like that message. Well, what do you want? You want God to just, you know, like wrap it up for you in 90 minutes like a movie? Like here's the problem and at the end, happily ever after? See, that's Hollywood, right? Where everything all gets worked out. What do you want God to just tell you the whole plan? In your whole life, has God ever said, here's exactly what's going to happen? And even if he did, would it even matter? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine if God just, what we really want, right, is God to just show up and say, hey, you, Joseph, you're a spoiled brat. You need to stop it. Oh, Okay. And what if Jacob, he says, hey, you, you're destroying your family. Stop showing favoritism. You need to quit doing that. Oh, okay. And then God would show up and say, hey, you brothers, you need to stop with the bitterness and the murdering heart. In fact, all of you guys watch him because they're going to do something really bad in a few days. Oh, okay. And then all of you people, you need to prepare. There's going to be a famine that's coming. Get ready. Prepare yourselves because, you know, in 23 years, big famine, so start saving now. Oh, all right, we'll do that. Nobody does that. See, nobody, see, here's the thing. You already know this. Nobody changes because you point out their sin. <laughs> Have you ever, your mom did that in your life, and you still keep doing the same stuff. Nobody gets, nobody changes because somebody points out a person's flaws and says, well, you need to stop doing that. No, you know when you really change is when you do something stupid enough times and you say, that's really painful. I need, to, I need to stop doing that. Or you have a moment of self-awareness that you experience, and you say, I don't, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's when we change. Nobody, nobody understands love because somebody tells them that they love them. You only understand love when you experience it. 
You know, I, you know how I know God loves me? Not because somebody says, well, God loves you. And if you think about it, I say that to you every week. Every Sunday I say, you know what? God loves you. This is the guilt-free zone. No condemnation here. He loves you. He's always with you. And then you still go out and live anxious, fearful, scared, controlling lives. Why? Why do people do that even though they know that they're being told God loves them? Well, because you have to experience love for it to be real. You know how I know God loves me? Because all those times in my past when it was a dark day, and I was depressed and discouraged, and I felt God was silent, and I went through periods of my life that I was so afraid and discouraged, and I felt God wasn't there, only to find out later I was totally wrong. And he was there all the time, and he never left me, and he was guiding me, and he had his hand on my life, and I learned over time that I could really trust him, and that he really did love me. So the only way we're ever gonna know that God loves us the only way we're ever going to change, the only way we ever become who he wants us to be is he takes us through some things. So give up trying to understand it all. Give up trying to know what he's up to. Give up trying to have it all make sense to you because it won't. You've heard me say this before. God's guidance is more about what God is doing in you than something that he's just giving to you. He's not going to tell it to you. In fact, in the book of Habakkuk, a little book in the Bible by this prophet, who, who wrote what God was up to when he was trying to explain to Israel, here's what's happening. He, look what he says. It's, it speaks to me. These things I plan won't happen right away. This is God talking. The things I plan, they're not going to happen right away. Oh, I hate that. And I hate what he says next. Slowly, I hate that. Steadily, surely, these things are going to come to pass. The time approaches that the vision will be fulfilled. If it seems slow, don't give up. Don't despair. These things will surely happen. Just be, another word I hate. They'll not be overdue a single day. God is up to something in your life. He is way more interested in what your character is becoming than increasing your comfort. God's not just out to make you happy and fat and dumb, like Pastor John says. He's out to make your character great, and that's just going to take some time. So, so what do you do? If you're sitting over there with, with, with Joseph at Cracker Barrel, and you're a little frustrated by this, this wonderful advice, how, how do I deal with it when I don't know what God is doing and I'm supposed to just endure it in the zigzags. What am I supposed to do? I think Joseph would pull a napkin out and he'd say, look, three strategies to help you. Here's what he would say. And the first one is this. You focus on what God is doing in you rather than what is happening to you. You keep your eyes, get the perspective on what he is doing in you. That's why the scriptures would say in James and all those places, you know, count it joy when you see what God is doing in your life. Don't consider it as, as a big old trial. Consider it as, as God is working on your character and, on your, and he's, he's developing you. You see, if it's really true that he's working on our character, then we have a role to play in the duration of how long the trial lasts. The duration of the trial is in direct proportion to our ability to learn. So how quickly... Uh, are you going to come to a place where God teach me? Instead of praying like, oh, God, you know, why? Well, he's not going to tell you why. God, get me out of this. And he'd say, well, I can't get you out of it. You haven't learned what I'm trying to teach you yet. And so 
it would be much better for you to be praying, God, what are you doing in me? God, what do you want me to learn here? You want this, you want to, you want to move on and develop and grow? Start praying the prayer. God, what are you doing in me? Stop focusing on, on who did it and being bitter and being upset and blaming other people. Just simply come back. God, what do you want to do in me through this situation? The second thing he would say is your response to offense is going to determine your future. So, so don't hang on to the bitterness. Your response to the offense is going to determine your future. So many people get parked by the offense and by the hurt, and they respond badly. And the question is, what are you going to do when you get into that moment where it's in your power to pay back? Joseph had that moment. Chapters 42 through 50 of Genesis is all of this incredible moment where Joseph now is in his position where God wanted him to be. And guess who shows up in this great worldwide famine to come buy food in Egypt? His brothers. And his brothers show up and they have no idea who he is. First of all, it's 23 years later. Secondly, he's in full Egyptian garb, you know, as the second in commands with the, you know, the little hook and the pointy beard and the makeup and all that. They didn't recognize him. But he recognized them. He knew exactly who they were. He had in his power with one command, he could take all those slave trafficking brothers out. And he didn't do it. In fact, when they figured out, when he revealed who he was, they were terrified. They were afraid. They, they knew, oh, God, you, you're going to judge us now for all that evil we did back, back in the day. And, and I love what Joseph, see, he got it. God had developed his character. You know what Joseph said? You know what his response was? Genesis 50, 20, memorize this verse. You meant it to me for evil, but God meant it to me for good. Can you say that with me? You meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. This is long before God works all things together for the good of those who love God. Who are called. See, you, you did, it was a wicked thing you did, but now I see you didn't have a chance either with the home we grew up in. And besides, God was using your action to get me to the place where now I could save all your lives. And he's used me. He, so, so in a moment of forgiveness, that family is psychologically healed. What happens in that family from that point forward is amazing because of an attitude of forgiveness. And I want to tell you that if you're holding on to resentment and unforgiveness, it's time to let that go. Your, your future cannot be, you're not free to your future if you're parked and paralyzed by the offense of the past. Your, your, your attitude towards offense is going to determine your future. And then the last thing is, he would say is this. Listen, everybody has hard times. Everybody endures hardship. You're not the only one. Stop thinking like you're the only person that has a bad life. Everybody has zigzags. In fact, I counted up this week when I was studying his story. He has twice as many give up moments as he has go on moments. But he would say, remember, God is with you the whole time. If you don't think that he's with you, see, here's the thing. Why we have to remember that is because we'll never feel it. You never feel, when you're in a zigzag or in a downturn or in a give up moment, you don't feel the presence of God. It feels like he's far away. But he says, in those moments, here's what you remember. God is really with you. And I want to close it. I'm just going to read some scripture because I don't think it's a mistake that you're here today. Some of you maybe haven't been here in a while. God brought you here today to hear this message, don't give up. And I want you to hear the word of the Lord as if he was talking to you. I'm not going to explain this or comment on it a whole lot. I just want to close today by just reading some scripture to you. This is what God says. This is the word of the Lord. 
If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of the sea, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. The rest aren't on the screen, but just listen. Don't listen with your heart here. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, and you will, you will not be burned. And the flames will not set you ablaze, because I will be with you. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. And finally, the words of our Lord Jesus, I will never leave you or forsake you, and surely I will always be with you, even to the very end. So don't give up. Don't give up. You just bow your heads for a minute. Let me just pray for you. Every head bowed. And will you just receive that today for your marriage or for your relationships with somebody that's important or your job or your finances, your children, even your relationship with God? If you were angry with him today because you felt like he had abandoned you, whatever you're going through, just receive this word from the Lord that he is with you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would let a spirit of encouragement fall on every person here. Let them know that you're with them Break the power of the accuser who reminds people of their past and all that's wrong and what they've done wrong. I pray that you'd set them free and liberate them by your encouraging word today that you are with them, that if God is for them, who can be against them? And if you say, Darren, I'm far from God today, listen, you are just one sincere prayer away. Jesus came to break the power of the barrier between us and God. And that barrier is, is a sinful life. It's, it's a self-ruled, self-controlled life. And simply just say this prayer. God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross to forgive me. I know that's true. And so today I say I'm sorry for trying to run everything, control everyone, control my own life. And today I'm ready to ask you to forgive me. I'm gonna trust you. I'm not gonna give up. I'm gonna believe that you're with me. And I pray that from this day forward, Lord, I want to follow you. I'm ready to say yes. You, you guide. I, I hope the weight just falls off your shoulders as you just give yourself fully to him in this moment. Jesus Christ, I give you my life. I will not give up today. Lord Jesus, draw every person today to you. Fill them with your Holy Spirit. May they never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen.